Hello, everybody. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Ray. Really glad to welcome everybody. I get to introduce uh, this week an incredible friend, um, someone who has invested pretty significantly in the church and, um, and a, very, a very real encouragement to me in my personal life, um, watching someone have the courage to devote themselves to make the effort, the sacrifice to know Jesus more and to share that with others. Um, so Ryan's going to be teaching us, leading us in our teaching time this morning, but as preparation for that, what I'd like us all to do is bring ourselves present here to this space. There's a lot going on. We've got a leaders meeting after church today. There's stuff to get ready for school next week. We got kids going different ways. Um, the world that we live in is busy, demanding, confusing. And so what we want to do now is create space for God to bring order to that. For God to bring peace where there is anxiety, hope where there is despair, safety where there is fear. And God can do that. God will do that. So take a moment with me. Just take a deep breath. Abba God, we let go of all the distractions. We make space for you, God, the Holy Spirit, to speak to us, to guide us, to encourage us and to calm us. You are here, God. We recognize and confess that and ask for you to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, John. So in 1964, a skinny kid in Oregon, fresh out of business school, decided he was going to give his senior thesis a real-life honest try. And so he began to import low-cost but decent-quality athletic shoes from Japan and to sell them uh, to amateur athletes in the area. And he would hustle around to track meets and sell them out of the back of his car. And, and things went pretty well, and, and demand grew, and he was able to hire a few people uh, to come on and uh, help him with the growth. Uh, but it was about in 1971 that uh, these handful of employees uh, realized that the next step of growth was to cut off their Japanese supplier and go all in on manufacturing their own shoes. And in this moment, they started to realize that this little thing that started out of the back of a car uh, could be bigger than Oregon. It could be bigger than the West Coast. Uh, it might even be bigger than North America. And so it became a righteous mission uh, to get their shoes on the feet of athletes. And 
The competitive headwinds and legal issues that they faced in the coming years only strengthened their resolve to offer the world something that they felt it didn't have but needed. And so as a result, at some point in your life, you've probably worn a pair of Nike shoes. The actors in our text this morning are a lot like those first Nike employees. Uh, They realize that this good news they have, the good news of Jesus to be reconciled to God and reconciled to others and reconciled to self, uh, is not to be used for uh, their own comfort, to spend time with people like them uh, and stay in a bubble, but it is to be used to serve a purpose and live out a story uh, that is much larger than themselves. And so... uh, Like Jeff said this morning, we've been studying Acts this summer, and we've been dialoguing with Acts, uh, and we've been allowing Acts to ask us questions. Uh, We've been asking questions of the characters of Acts, and this morning is our last day in Acts for the summer before we move on to a new series next week. And so before we dive into Acts chapter 13 this morning, uh, just a quick refresher. We've covered a lot of ground in the last 10 or 12 weeks, uh, asked a lot of questions, looked at a lot of different things. And so uh, to get us up to speed before we dive in this morning, uh, just a quick, a quick summary. So in the beginning, Jesus promises his disciples that they'll be his witnesses in their city, in their region, and all over the world. And so they begin to speak his name, to speak his message in their city in Jerusalem. And it's during that time that the scripture tells us that they've got unity and harmony as they eat and pray and worship and, and even facilitate miracles. Uh, but they, they face some headwinds too. They've got, they've got some issues among them. Uh, they've got people in their body that are dishonest and deceitful, and they've got to deal with some ethnic tension as well. They've got to overcome uh, that, that very real issue. And uh, that's probably even overshadowed by the external threats that they faced. And so as uh, the powers that be, the old guard in Jerusalem, uh, the ones with the influence uh, that are very uh, strong in their Jewish heritage, uh, aren't sure what to do with a message about this Jesus that they keep claiming is the Messiah. And so some of the disciples are threatened, uh, beaten, imprisoned, uh, and that ends up culminating in the murder of one of the leaders of the early church. And it's at that time that the disciples leave Jerusalem to flee this persecution, uh, and they begin to witness in the broader region, but they continue uh, mainly to interact with their fellow Jews. And so uh, it's, a, it's a few years later, or maybe a few months, when Peter has a vision from God and a subsequent encounter uh, with a non-Jew, with a Roman leader. And this Roman, an outsider of the Jewish community, comes to faith, and that opens the door uh, for anybody to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to become a Jew first. You don't have to observe the Jewish rituals. You can come straight to Jesus. And that's a major shift. And that is the context in which we enter uh, our text this morning. And so we're in Acts chapter 13. Uh, We're going to start in verse 1, and we'll pause uh, a few different times and and, uh, go throughout the chapter that way. And so starting in verse 1. The congregation in Antioch was blessed with a number of prophet preachers and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, nicknamed Niger, Lucius, the Cyrenian, Manan, an advisor to the ruler Herod, and Saul. So quick pause. Right away, we see the prophecy of Jesus that this will be a faith for all peoples and the practice of the church uh, has come to fruition because these five names are 
from all over the known world. They're all over the Mediterranean, okay? And so this church at Antioch has lived into, has grown into uh, this promise and prophecy that the gospel will be for all people. Continuing on, one day as they were worshiping God, they were also fasting as they waited for guidance. The Holy Spirit spoke, take Barnabas and Saul and commission them for the work I have called them to do. So they commissioned them. In that circle of intensity and obedience, of fasting and praying, they laid hands on their heads and sent them off. Sent off on their new assignment by the Holy Spirit, Barnabas and Saul went down to Seleucia and caught a ship for Cyprus. The first thing they did when they put in at Salamis was preach God's word in the Jewish meeting places. They had John along to help out as needed. And so quick pause, and while the text doesn't explicitly say it, this will be uh, Paul's first of three major missionary journeys. Uh, he's, he's actually still Saul at this time, but in a few verses, he'll become Paul. Saul is his, his birth name. He was born into a Jewish family, and it's a Jewish name. Uh, but he, as he spends time now outside of Jewish communities in the Roman provinces, he will go by the Roman translation of his name, which is Paul. Continuing on in verse 6, they traveled the length of the island, and at Paphos came upon a Jewish wizard who had worked himself into the confidence of the governor. Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man not easily taken in by charlatans. The wizard's name was Bar-Jesus. He was as crooked as a corkscrew. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul in, wanting to hear God's word firsthand from them. But Dr. Know-it-all, that's the wizard's name in plain English, stirred up a ruckus, trying to divert the governor from becoming a believer. But Saul, or Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, and looking him straight in the eye, said, You bag of wind, you parody of a devil, why, you stay up nights inventing schemes to cheat people out of God. But now you've come up against God himself, and your game is up. You're about to go blind. No sunlight for you for a good long stretch. He was plunged immediately into a shadowy mist and stumbled around, begging people to take his hand and show him the way. When the governor saw what happened, he became a believer, full of enthusiasm over what they were saying about the master. So uh, another pause here. So the church at Antioch, and, it, and the text you know, makes it sound like there's at least consensus among the leaders, if not the entire body, has decided they want to send Paul and Barnabas to preach the message of Jesus to the Roman provinces. And so the first place they go is the island of Cyprus, the Mediterranean island. And so we're seeing them now join this bigger purpose, right? They, they are no longer uh, in the comforts of their own community with people just like them. They have branched out to serve a purpose that's bigger than themselves. And they're going to show us three realities uh, about, about the good news of the gospel and what happens when you live a bigger purpose. But this first, this first section of coming to this, this Roman governor, the first time I read it, I just thought, wow, that's, that just seems really harsh. I mean, um, it's, it's just a strange series of events, and it ends with Paul facilitating a blindness, not unlike the own blindness that he experienced a few chapters previously. Um, but think for a second uh, about what you think about when you hear the word missionary. And this may be a question that, that the actors in Acts would ask us. But my guess is we all, have, uh, we all have an idea of what we think a missionary is, what we think a missionary does. Um, and, and part of that is probably that they are spreading an ideology, right? 
I mean, that's how, when I came to this text, I'm looking at Paul and Barnabas. Uh, but they could ask us, how did you, or sorry, we could ask them, how did we, how do we perceive their work as they were sent out from Antioch? Um, or excuse me, how did you perceive your work as you were sent out from Antioch? Because my guess is we will have a little bit different uh, idea of what they're doing than they do. We look at them as they're here to spread an ideology, but I think that they weren't there to spread an ideology. They're there to spread the message of a person and the peace that this person gives. And so as I continue to read over this text and about how strong of a reaction Paul has to this wizard, It's not because it's a competing ideology, but it's because, as Paul says, you've come up against God. And so Paul realizes that it's it's not one ideology versus the other. It is for the peace of this Roman governor and that this wizard is using his own gain. He's he's using his, his, his sorcery for his own gain, and Paul is going to have none of it. And, and so he, by the Holy Spirit, uh, is able to strike him blind. And this is part of what leads this Roman governor to faith. And what we see in that, the first reality that we see is that God's, God's work and God's plan cannot be thwarted. And that's great news for us, right? And we may not see the immediate, the immediate effects. We may uh, have longer term. We may wait longer uh, to see sometimes the visible effects uh, of God's plans at work, um, whereas they saw it obviously pretty immediately in this text. Uh, but God's plans we can trust uh, cannot be thwarted. His purpose will prevail. As we continue on in verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and company put out to sea, sailing on to Perga and Pamphylia. That's where John called it quits and went back to Jerusalem. From Perga, the rest of them traveled on to Antioch and Pisidia. Now, this is, not the, this is a different Antioch than, than the location that sent them. Uh, this Antioch that they've come to now is in Turkey, while the sending church in Antioch was in Syria. On the Sabbath, they went to the meeting place and took their places. After the reading of the scriptures, God's law and the prophets, the president of the meeting asked them, Friends, do you have something you want to say? A word of encouragement, perhaps. So this is amazing. They asked Paul and Barnabas if they'd like to speak in, in the Jewish synagogue. And as you can imagine, they obliged this. And uh, we're not going to read it word for word. I'm kind of going to summarize um, what, what Paul does. But he echoes a sermon from Stephen a couple chapters earlier. Uh, and he just goes full Old Testament on them. Gives them the entire history of their lineage. And so he talks uh, about Israel being rescued out of slavery in Egypt. He talks about God's providence to Israel in the wilderness. He talks about God's providence to Israel as they took the land they'd been promised. He talks about God's faithfulness from the time of Judges to the throne of King David, who will be the ancestor of a Savior. And then he gets into the New Testament where he talks about John the Baptist preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus, and then the death and resurrection of Jesus, in which he says, there is no disputing this. And he even quotes a psalm and a text from Isaiah that foreshadows Jesus. Continuing on in verse 38, he says, I want you to know, my very dear friends, 
that it is on account of this resurrected Jesus that the forgiveness of your sins can be promised. He accomplishes in those who believe everything that the law of Moses could never make good on. But everyone who believes in this raised up Jesus is declared good and right and whole before God. One scholar I came across called this the most God-centered sermon in the Bible. And it makes sense. Why? Well, what's he saying? He's saying, look at your heritage, your history, the legacy you're a part of, even the scripture you've studied. It points to Jesus. The summer uh, before my senior year of college, I had an internship, and I lived with my grandparents. And uh, the internship started in the last full week of May. And so I worked that first week, five days, and it was great because the next Monday was Memorial Day. I got, my first, I got a day off, you know, my second week. And uh, so I woke up at, at Grandma and Grandpa's, and my Grandpa said, Hey, uh, Grandma's not feeling up for it, um, but I'm going to go out to Madison County where, where he grew up, and I'm going to visit uh, the grave sites of, of our ancestors and of our family. Would you like to join? I said, Sure. I'm not doing anything else on my day off. And uh, what a formative day that turned out to be because uh, as we drove through the gravel roads and hills uh, south of Huntsville, uh, my grandpa gave me a lot of stories about his life growing up, about his parents, his family, his siblings, uh, even his grandparents. And I had known a little bit, uh, a decent amount, about my, my grandfather's story. He was the oldest of four. His dad was basically unemployed most of his life and drank a lot of alcohol. And so my grandpa grew up not only being the older brother, but also the man of the house a lot. Um, but more importantly than that, uh, he chose to uh, end the cycle uh, of, of that dysfunction that could have very easily been passed down to him from his dad. And he had an, he had an encounter with Jesus at age 18 that not only, uh, you know, really set the trajectory for the rest of his life, but it set the trajectory for an entire family as he passed that lineage on to his kids and grandkids and now great-grandkids. And I, I got home that day uh, realizing that I was a part of a much bigger legacy, a much bigger heritage than I'd ever realized. And that at the end of the day, uh, because of my grandfather's experience, that legacy and that heritage pointed to Jesus. And so it put me in context uh, of the people that be came before me and the people that came after me. And that's what Paul is telling our, the Israelites here. He's saying, you guys have this incredible rich history of being God's people. And look, the entire point is that it points to Jesus. And so that is the second reality that, that we see uh, as the disciples live a purpose beyond themselves is that uh, any follower of Jesus is part of a spiritual heritage and a legacy uh, that they get to be a part of and play a role in. Continuing in verse 42, when the service was over, Paul and Barnabas were invited back to preach again the next Sabbath. As the meeting broke up, a good many Jews and converts to Judaism went along with Paul and Barnabas, who urged them in long conversations to stick with what they'd started, this living in and by God's grace. When the Sabbath came around, practically the whole city showed up to hear the word of God. Some of the Jews, seeing the crowds, went wild with jealousy and tore into Paul, contradicting everything he was saying, making an ugly scene. But Paul and Barnabas didn't back down. Standing their ground, they said, 
It was required that God's word be spoken first of all to you, the Jews. But seeing that you want no part of it, you've made it quite clear that you have no taste or inclination for eternal life. The door is open to all the outsiders, and we're on our way through it, following orders, doing what God commanded when he said, I've set you up as light to all nations. You'll proclaim salvation to the four winds and seven seas. When the non-Jewish outsiders heard this, they could hardly believe their good fortune. All who were marked out for real life put their trust in God. They honored God's word by receiving that life, and this message of salvation spread like wildfire all through the region. So, okay, uh, the disciples uh, preached this very clear gospel message. They get a very good response. They're invited to come back next week. Um, And uh, the Jewish people realize that everybody's been invited, and they're having none of it. In our teaching team meeting this week, I was a little bit hard on the Jews, but Donnie brought up a really, really brilliant analogy. And he said, you know, when Uber came to New York, there was a big fuss, you know, the rideshare app, right? Because, I mean, is there a more quintessential place to be a taxi driver than New York City? Probably not. I mean, it's like, it seems like three quarters of the cars in New York City, you know, are are yellow taxi cabs. And uh, what I didn't know before this week was that it takes a lot to be a taxi cab in New York City. There's a lot of hoops that you've got to jump through, but none bigger uh, is that you have to have what's called a taxi medallion. And basically, a taxi medallion is it's a, just a certificate that you put on your car that says you're allowed to be a taxi driver in New York City. But uh, this, the city of New York and other cities do this too. They control the supply of taxi drivers. And so they sell these medallions to taxi drivers and taxi companies. Uh, and that way, they can have a grasp on, on how many cars are on the road. But uh, what also happens and is legal is that people sell taxi medallions to each other. And it's kind of like the housing market. If there's a lot of demand uh, in a certain area for a certain good, the price is going to be really high. And so in 2013, a taxi medallion, the taxi medallion market value peaked at over a million dollars. This is just to have the permission to practice taxi driving in New York. Peaked at over a million dollars. And so it's only a couple years later when the rideshare apps are starting to take over the country and a lot of cities in the U.S., all you have to do is have a smartphone and a 98 Impala and you can be a taxi driver, right? And so uh, as there's a lot of resistance in the bigger cities and especially New York, uh, it becomes clear that that it's just unavoidable. And the taxi drivers uh, are logically and justifiably enraged, right? They've, pay, they've taken out loans to buy these expensive medallions. Now the medallion value is dropping because anybody can show up and be a taxi driver. Uh, and so basically they're saying, hey, look, we've done all these things that we're supposed to do, and now not only is business being taken from us, uh, but they're undercutting us on price. We, our livelihood, we've done everything the right way, and our livelihood uh, is being compromised. And that's the attitude that the Jewish people are taking here, right? We are the Israelites. We've followed the law. We've done the right things. And now you're saying everybody is invited to this gospel party? That, that's not fair. There's, you know, there's no fairness in that. And, you know, they're saying that, that that's worthless. Our heritage is worthless. And Paul says, it's not that it's worthless. It's that you've missed the point. The point in your existence as Israel and following your law is to show God to outsiders, not to get God for yourselves. 
And so scripture tells us there is no effort that earns you God. And that's great news because if you can't earn God, you cannot unearn God either. And yet we sometimes have this response uh, when we see similar circumstances in our own life. And so following, uh, following back up in verse 50, some of the Jews convinced the most respected women and leading men of the town that their precious way of life was about to be destroyed. Alarmed, they turned on Paul and Barnabas and forced them to leave. Paul and Barnabas shrugged their shoulders and went on to the next town, Iconium, brimming with joy in the Holy Spirit, two happy disciples. And this is amazing to me, right? Because uh, they've been run out of town and they don't take it personally at all. They shrug, continue in joy, and keep doing their thing. And this shows us uh, the third reality of living for a purpose bigger than yourself. And that's that the results of the work of God are up to God. The pressure is off. Uh, faithfulness is our responsibility, and God gets to do with that as he pleases. And so, worship team, uh, you're welcome to come back up to the front. To bring it, to bring it back to center, as we look at these realities, uh, that God's purposes prevail, that followers of Jesus carry on the legacy of a larger story, and that the results are up to God, this is freedom. But it's counterintuitive because when somebody says it's not about you or be a part of something bigger, uh, they're usually trying to coerce you into doing something that you don't want to do. But freedom is the opposite of coercion. And it begs the question, how do we get this freedom that comes from living for a purpose bigger than ourselves? Well, it's counterintuitive as well. But we experience, submit, we experience freedom by submitting to the grace of God. You know, submission doesn't sound like freedom, uh, but when we submit to grace, when we accept grace, uh, we can walk, we can walk in that. And so how do we do that? Well, we, part of it is we go back to what Bonnie said last week and what John said a few weeks ago, that the Christian faith is even more than a belief system, it's a practice. And so uh, we engage in the practices that bring us to experience grace and bring us to experience Jesus. And it's not so that we can earn God, but so that we can experience God. Now, if you're like me out there, if I was out there, here's what I'd be saying. Yeah, I hear you, but I've done everything I know how to do, and something just still isn't right. And if you're thinking that, I don't have any formulas or simple answers for you, but I can say that I hear you, I see you, and I know that feeling. Um, it's interesting, I spent a good portion of the week um, in, uh, basically in fear that uh, I wouldn't have anything valuable to say or that I wouldn't be able to articulate it. And so um, the irony is not lost on me that uh, one of the main points is that the, uh, the results are up to God and I, and I spent most of the weekend worried about the results. Um, but uh, I can point us back to verse 43. Uh, he says, stick with what you started, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and let God answer. And so as we look back on our study of Acts this summer, if we've seen nothing else, uh, we've seen the main character in the story, God, at work among his people. And they are people just like us, walking in faith and unity with him and with each other for the purpose of the world, knowing him and living reconciled to him, others, and self. And so to engage in that practice as a group, we partake in communion. We've been doing that as, uh, as a group this summer to emulate what we've seen in Acts. And so uh, 
We practice an open communion table. Uh, the communion table is open to all who are seeking Jesus, and we do this in remembrance uh, that none of us have earned God, uh, but he's given himself freely to us. And so uh, when you come, uh, take the bread, take the juice, uh, sit in one of these first three or four rows, and then John is going to facilitate uh, our taking of the sacraments together. Thank you.